0: Take your Bibles, if you would, with me this morning to the book of 1 Samuel. Started our series through that book a couple weeks ago, and we started entitling it. We're going to kind of probably use this as the theme moving through the book of 1 Samuel. Last week's message title, God's Story, Your Part. You can even say God's Story, My Part. Uh, This morning, we have a subtitle to that. I've subtitled this message, Choosing the Right direction. It's God's story, but my part in what I'm doing. And this morning I want to talk about choosing the right direction. Uh, would you follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 11? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. The Bible says this And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, they knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook and three teeth in the ham, and he struck it to the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the flesh brook brought up to the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also before they burnt the fat, the priest's servants came, and said to the man that sacrificed, "Give flesh to the roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw." And if any man said unto him, "Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth," then he would answer him, "Nay, but thou shalt give it to me now, and not I will take it by force." Wherefore the sin of the young man was very great. Or excuse me, the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord. For men abhor the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child girded with a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year, when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went into their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. And the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and heard all that his sons did unto Israel, unto all Israel. And now they lay with women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear your evil, de- evil de- uh, dealings by all this people." "'Nay, my son, for it is no good that I for, uh, report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. And the child Samuel grew on, and was in favor both with the Lord.' and also with men. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, as we evaluate a larger chunk of Scripture, our desire, Lord, is not just to get an understanding of what's taking place in this Old Testament book. Lord, our desire is to find out, Lord, what did you want us to learn from this? Help us to understand it. Help us, Lord, to see the application to us today. But more importantly, Father, you've made it clear, uh, Lord, to be hearers of the Word but not uh, doers. We are deceiving our own selves. May that not be the case today. Lord, as we examine your plan, your plan for our lives and what our part is in it, may we listen to you today for what you want us to learn. We love you, Father. I pray if there's anyone here listening or watching or here today that is not 100% sure that heaven is home, I pray, Father, you'd help them to understand that today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the true doctrines in Scripture that is often a source of debate in our Christian world is this debate between what we call the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. From my experience, if you're not careful, you can find yourself connected to somebody who takes one of these two extremes. The one is the sovereignty of God and the full extreme. And that extreme is that I cannot be saved unless He forces it on me. I don't have a choice, which means you can often say I don't have a choice in decisions I make. I've heard even some say, uh, where I'm at and the sins I commit are a result of God's sovereignty. There's the other side of the coin. We talk about the free will of man. And so we go there and say, well, I have a free will, and it's really my choice, and I can do what I want. The other extreme is that God has no say in my life. Now, both of these extremes are 100% wrong. But we have to understand, God is sovereign. And he has given us a free will. See, Pastor, which one of those is true? They both are. The best way I've heard it described was one teacher of mine in college said, it's kind of like two train tracks or two lanes going at a distance. If you stand between them, at some point they cross over, but you're never really going to see where they are. Here's the point. God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he's given us a free will. Now, here's a better simplistic way to put it. God in his sovereignty has given you a perfect plan. It is your choice whether or not you will follow that. That's really what it comes down to. God has laid out in front of you, day by day, week by week, what he wants for you and what is the best for you. You will choose what you will do, whether you will follow that or whether you will ignore that. You see, if we see the sovereignty of God is too much, we can say God's punishing me, I haven't done anything right. So what do I play? What is my part in all of this? He has given me this free will, created a perfect plan for me in my life. See, it tells us in Psalm 119, 105, a scripture passage we refer to often. The Bible says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. A couple unique things about that verse. One, he, there is a guide, there is a path that explains, there is a path we're on, and God has given us direction for it. But notice, it's a small light. God hasn't said, here's the next 30 years. God has said, here's today, here's tomorrow, here's this week. It's really like a flashlight. You go through a dark place, you're going to be given just enough information to know what to do today. And when tomorrow comes, God will give you enough information, enough grace for tomorrow. In this passage we just read, we see a very vast contrast between two different families, two different children. We see the children of Eli, and then the sons of Alkanah and Hannah. We see Hophni and Phinehas, and then we see... Samuel. Now let me encourage you here real quick. I'm not here. The message today is not a message on the home. Uh, We'll reference some things on it, but it's not all the things Eli did wrong and all the things that Samuel's family did right. As a matter of fact, we know very little in Scripture, of what Eli did or did not do and vice versa. We have very little information as to why Hophni and Phinehas ended up the way they did and why Samuel ended up the way he did. Honestly, if you want to make this a pattern for parenting, we've got to give our kids back to the church at the age of three, right? So that's not the pattern. That's not what happened. There is something unique here that we need to see. It comes back to the sovereignty of God, a free will of man. Let me give you a simple example where I'm coming from this. There was a time when I used to hear a certain type of preaching. Whether or not it was meant this way, at least it's how I heard it. And it was goes back to Proverbs two six: train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. And I heard people say this, if you have your kids in church, and a Christian school, or homeschool, or a good school, whatever, if you have them in a good place, then they'll never leave God. They'll never leave church. But the thing I've watched is I've watched people who have done everything that the church would prescribe and their kids have said, I don't really want a lot to do with this. The one thing we lose in all of that thinking is the fact that we cannot force our kids to decide what they're going to do with God. That is their decision just like it was your decision when you were their age. You say, well, pastor, then what's the promise of that verse? It really comes down to the word depart. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. Let me explain what that word depart means. You can actually translate it. Today, it's probably the, more, the better efficient word would say escape. Here's the premise. It's not that your kids will never leave God or wander from God for a while. Here's what it is, that they will never escape the truths that they've been given from the Word of God. They may go and spend years away from church, but know that they will not escape all the things that you place them around. They will not escape the teachings of the Word of God. You say, now let me go back to another argument I heard. Well, if we keep our kids in church too much and force them in church too much, they're going to grow to hate God. We need to let them choose it when they're younger. I'll argue at some point they need to make their own decision. But when they're younger... Do you let them choose what they're going to eat for dinner, all right, or whether or not they're going to go to the dentist? You make them go to the dentist because you need to fix the smell. You know what I'm talking about, it, all right? There's, you, there's some control things that we choose to do. You say, well, they've got to make their own decisions. and what's no, There's no promise that if I bring them, they're going to turn out right. Can I challenge you in one area? If, bringing the, if the Bible says my kids cannot depart or escape the teachings of the Word of God, then what should I have my family around? The teachings of the word of God I can't guarantee what my kids will do when they hit 18 19 20 25 or 30 I can love them I can continue to love them no matter what they do by the way do you realize no matter where your kids end up you should love them no matter what amen that's the way God has it I heard a preacher the other day say something I thought it was great he was talking to his kids and he said this She goes out of one one out of 10 I love you 11 that'll never change If you come home and do something you think is bad, I still love you, 11. That will never change. And that's the way it should be. Love them no matter what. What they do with God should not make a difference. I love them no matter what, and I keep praying for them. But wouldn't I want to have my family around something that God says at least that teaching will be there? I can't guarantee. But I'm going to give them as much information as I possibly can, which makes church that much more important. Today, the culture says it's not that big of a deal. You get a little bit. You can get it online later. And all of that is somewhat true. But can I tell you, as long, the moment we take God and move Him from number one to number two, three, or four, we have told our families we don't care. Don't you catch that? The moment God's from being number one to number three, we have told our kids we don't care. It's simple. God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto me. Can you, you think about this? You ever studied Scripture? and looked to see where God said placing him first is okay, or placing him second is okay? As a matter of fact, study Scripture. Start with the Ten Commandments. What did God say about placing things above him? There's an awful lot of Scripture about saying don't do that. So there's no place in God's economy for him to be balanced with the rest of the world. It is God and everything else. We get to the end of the message. I'm going to give you some explanation. I'm giving a premise, because this is more than family. This is my life. And I'll give you some final thoughts on that. I'm going to do something for the next few minutes, uh, different than I normally do. Normally, we take the sections of Scripture we read, we break them up. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to explain what's happening. And then the minute, we're going to give some principles in the final minutes here. So let's explain what we read a moment ago. The Bible talks about these young mans by the name of Hophni and Phinehas. As a matter of fact, he said they did not know God. They were sons of Belial. The word Belial is a Hebrew word that simply means worthless. They were empty. They were pointless. They didn't believe God. They were priests in the work of God, but they didn't believe in God. They had put on the front. They had done what a lot of people in church do. They grew up in church. They knew what to say. They knew how to dress, but they never put their faith in God. But they came to church. I tell you, I've been in church my entire life. I've met people like this. I'm just telling you my opinion. They know what to say, but they don't know God how do you know that? Now, well, personally, after a while, you get to know somebody, Christians pretty much pretty easy to pick, right? Get easy to see. The unsaved, you can only fake it so long, and the only person who really know, believes it is you. But, so these two men, now I won't go into a lot of detail, but what happened was there was sacrifices. A portion of this sacrifice was always kept to feed the priests. That's how they made money. Remember, the, uh, the, uh, the priestly line of Aaron did not have land. All the other people had land except them. They had the priesthood. So, they were to be paid and taken care of by these sacrifices. But so much of it went to them, so much of it went back to worship and to Israel, things of that nature. Well, these two boys, not only did they take what was normally theirs, there was another part that was supposed to be completely cooked to God, but it was the better part. You know what they said? Give that to us. What was supposed to be given to God, they took. And then people would come to them and say, You're not supposed to do this. And he said, Oh, no, no. If you don't give it to me, we're taking it. And please understand the power that the priest had in the Old Testament. And so there was this absolute abuse of power. We're going to do things our way. And then it moves on. The Bible tells us later that they were having adultery with different women that would come to the uh, temple. They didn't believe any of this. They were worthless. Then there's a boy by the name of Samuel. The Bible says Samuel grew in favor with God and man. You say, there's got to be a big difference between the families. We'll talk about that in a moment. Can I tell you one thing there's a difference? These two boys, Hathnain and Phinehas, never believed God. Samuel did. The difference was they had one had God, one didn't. That's the difference. That's what we want to get in our families. It's not, can I conform them to my image of church? Can I introduce them to God? And can I convince them that I love God as much as I hope they will one day? Is God that important to me to be able to let the rest of the world, my family, know it is that important? And so... What happened at the end of the section we read is some people came to Eli. And they told Eli what was happening. Eli was older, wasn't able to see very well, so he had handed over the roll to his two children, which makes complete sense. It was the way it was supposed to be. Someone came. Several people were telling him. So here's the problem. Here's where the major problem lies in this passage. People, uh, people come to Eli. They tell Eli he's, 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 he's embarrassed, he's, he's frightened, so he brings half nine Phinehas in. Please remember, this is not about them being children. This is the position they hold. And what does Eli do? Oh, come on, guys, you shouldn't be doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, all right? It's not good you do this. Come on, knock it off. That's what I can hear him saying. Just knock it off, all right? This isn't good. It looks bad in the temple, and you know you're not supposed to do this, so just, just stop it. That's how I see it. Why? Because what should Eli have done? Removed them from the position. But he desired to be liked by his kids more than he did to honor the things of God. He made a choice. And that choice sent him down a direction that would, he would regret the rest of his life. Please remember, the punishment we'll look at in a moment had nothing to do with the half and Phineas, and everything to do with Eli's choice. His choice to honor his kids over God was what we're going to see. So let's read a little bit further and see what happens next. Down to verse 27. And there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear into the house of thy father? When they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house, he's referencing the father Aaron. Verse 28. And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar and to burn incense to earn ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by the fire of the children of Israel? He's referencing the prophecy and the promises, commands to the priestly line. Verse 29. Wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offering, which I have commanded in mine habitation, and honorest thy sons above me, to make yourselves fat with the chief of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Wherefore, the Lord God of Israel saith, I indeed that thy house... And the house of thy father should walk before me forever. That was my goal. But now the Lord saith, be it far from me. For them that honoreth me will I honor, and them that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm in the arm of thy father's house, and there shall not be an old man in thy house. Catch this first phrase, not an old man in thy house. None of them would live old enough. They would all die young. Verse 32. And thou shalt see an enemy in thine habitation. And all the wealth which God shall give Israel, and there shall not be an old man in thine house forever. And the, and the man of thine, whom I shall not cut off from of mine altar, shall be consumed, Shall consume thine eyes, and to grieve thine heart. And all the increase of thy house shall die in the flower of their age. And this shall be a sign unto thee. Thou shalt come upon thy two sons, on half nine Phinehas, and one day they shall die, both of them. And I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left in thine house shall come and crouch to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and shall say, Put me, I pray thee, into the priest's offices, and I may eat a piece of the bread. They will even be hurting financially, begging for a position. Let me quickly break down what happened in this passage. God becomes angry, not at Hophni and Phinehas, but at Eli's unwillingness to deal with them. So here's the punishment that he gives to the prophet. Both of his sons would die in one day. Again, not because of their actions, but because of Eli's. His family would lose their priestly position. His following generations would never get old, and they would be poor. You look at this. You ask the question, why would God do this? Look again back at verse 29. This is what God said to Eli, Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offering, which I have commanded in mine habitation, and honorest thy sons above me, to make yourself fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of the Israel, my people. So where we look at the idea, he made a choice. He says, why would you, knowing the truth, choose your family and choose pleasing people over my commandments now please understand something that i think is important to understand why is it that eli was punished greater than other people who would have done the same thing very simple the bible teaches us to whom much is given of much is required eli was a priest not only was he given a great opportunity he was given great responsibility let me give an example of that one of the things that frightens me as a pastor more than anything is to make sure I was reading a book this week and the initial preacher he was talking about one day he was young he was new to pastoring and he said he would put so much prep, prep preparation time into his message and he said one day after several months of what he thought was great preaching a young man he called him Pete that wasn't his name he called him up and he said hey oh, this man came to him pastor I need to talk to you he's like this man's being moved by the Word of God he wants to get advice so they meet in the office and he goes you're killing us pastor your messages are killing us you need here are some tapes back in those days cassette tapes of a good preacher listen to him be like him he said and i'm not the only person who thinks that you know what i've learned in 22 years when i hear the phrase i'm not the only person who thinks that you know what i've learned he's the only person who thinks that all right it's a great way to scare so what the preacher do he started listening to the tapes changed his preaching because he was convinced. He goes, he was like sitting out looking and all I could see is Pete. He's like his head was 10 times the size waiting to, so I could please him, so I could prove that I'm a good preacher. He said a few weeks after doing that, a nice elderly lady pulled me aside and said, Pastor, I got a question for you. He's like, oh, no, here it goes again. He goes, what happened to you? You're no longer preaching to God. Someone's gotten to you. He goes, I realize that. I was preaching to Pete, not to God. You see, Why? It's not our job to please, it's our job to please God. We preach to an audience of one. And if I decide to do things for myself, I receive greater punishment than anybody else would because of the position I've been given, even more so in the Old Testament. Eli knew, and he chose to go against this. So, here we give you the premise. The the points we're going to won't take as long as normal. Don't, Don't panic yet, all right? So, here's his main thought as we move into the principles where we will end up a result of the direction we are heading right now if nothing changes where we will end up down the road as a result of the direction we are heading right now three thoughts quickly the first one is this we can always choose our direction we have the right to always choose our direction a couple quick thoughts under this let's look at the importance of a good example if Eli had set an example or Eli had set an example that apparently didn't place God at the highest priority Hophni and Phinehas made their own decisions, and we can't blame Eli for everything. But when Eli was told about our actions, he did nothing. Here's my consideration. I can't prove anything, so I'll give you my opinion. It makes me believe that that Eli's response to his sons, this was not the first time he had done this. Likely, this was the norm. This is maybe how he reared his children. Now, I find something intriguing, because these two boys grew up in the same home as Samuel did, when you think about it. Samuel grew up to honor God. Right now, there was a difference. He had a family. It was a bit different. But in reality, Eli, if we can see this and say this is his decision, apparently you could assume, you don't make a guarantee, but assume this might have been what it was. He had the power to remove them, and there are plenty of others who could have taken his place, but he chose not to. He chose, as not only a father but as a priest, to tell his two adult sons, you are more important than the things of God. And can I tell you, I'm afraid that we can get into that place today. We can get into the place today where money, where work, where being liked, and all those things are more important than the things of God. And the world tells you that. You're a Christian, you do a little bit here and there. And don't get me wrong, Satan wants you to be engaged just enough to feel good about being engaged with God. And God says, I want you to put me above everything else in the world. And that is an absolute necessity that we choose to do this. What example do we give to our children? What example do we give to the world? Is this really as important to us as as God wants it to be? Our decisions would make that. The importance of a good example. Two, the importance of honoring the things of the Lord. Catch this. God was angered more by the lack of honor to the temple than he was about what was taking place. The judgment we see recorded here is greater then other people, what they might have received for the same things simply because it was reflecting on the things of God. It wasn't their sin that brought such great judgment, but their disrespect to the things of God. That's an important lesson for us. Sin, unfortunately, is part of life. But our respect to God and His things are a choice we make and say a lot about how we view God, how we choose to act. When God confronts us, what do we do? When we know we're wrong, what do we do? Unfortunately, we will sin, but how we view the things of God says a lot about how we view God. The importance of honoring things of God. Principle three, the reality that I have a choice. I want to make an important point here. These two boys are not, were not destined to be like this. Or Samuel to be different. There were many decisions and choices made that led up to these different endings. Let me give you some scripture that I think helps understand. That Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. The Bible says, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh. Basically what he's saying is soweth to the life, to the world, to my, my fleshly desires, shall of that flesh reap corruption. And he that soweth to the Spirit shall love that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, reap life everlasting. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Here's what he's saying. If I sow my life and my desires and my money and my times and my talents and treasures to the world, I'm going to reap back things of the world. He says that the flesh reap corruption. Here's what the world says. We see the word corruption and we think that means we're going to die, we're going to fall apart. That's not what the word corruption means. You know what the word corruption means? All right. You ever bought something and then forgot you had it? This, this end of this last uh, year, cutting grass, um, I, I, it was one of those battles. I had injured my leg, and so other people in the family were cutting grass. And my wife came out to me. She's like, I think something's wrong with the lawnmower. And I looked out, and you could see that it had been scalped in certain areas. I didn't want to ask who cut. I'm like, you know, I'm not doing it, and it's pretty stupid on my part to say, say anything. She said, I don't know. I just think something's maybe broken on the lawnmower. And I went out, and we've had, we bought an inexpensive one. We've had it now probably seven years or whatever, so maybe less. I walked out to it, and it was sitting weird. And I'm like, this is strange. So I picked up the front of it, and it, metal, folded over. It had rusted underneath, and when she was cutting, it broke. And so she was trying, there was no front wheel. She was pushing it across the grass. You know what happened? It just corrupted. It fell apart, it's not saying that if I seek the world, all of a sudden my life will be one of destruction. It's saying when I go after the world, I'm going to get worldly things back, which end up dying and corrupting. Here's why I say this. We've got this idea. I'm leading to an end thought, but we've got this idea. We've got this idea that there are two kinds of things for God. I'm either being greatly blessed of God, or I'm being punished by God. So if I'm not being punished by God, I'm in a really good place. It's not what Scripture teaches There's not great blessing, punishment. There's actually in between. Punishment comes from people who are just choosing to live in sin and continue to go. And God says, I chasten whom I love. You can be in a spot in your Christian life where you're not being punished, but you're not really being blessed. You can be in that spot. And that's what we see. That corruption is, I can get from the world. I can get money. I can get homes. I can get cars. I can get clothes. I can get those things, but they're just going to end up being empty. And corrupt. They're gonna fall apart. Those things don't bring fulfillment. Those things are not God's plan. So I have a choice in where I'm going to go. This passage reminds us that our direction and decisions are a major part of what takes place next. You can choose to go the right way. So we can't choose, we have a right to choose what direction we're going to go to, but point two is this: we cannot choose the outcome. We cannot choose the outcome. Now We've given a promise in the verse we just read. If we go one way, we'll receive from God. If we go the opposite, we've been given an idea of what God will say. But here's my point. If we choose to go against God and just go our own way, go the wrong direction, we have little to no power over what comes next. So let's look at a couple of things. Let's see, one, the distinction between the two outcomes. Eli's son and Samuel turning out different did not just happen. They were a result of many decisions, choices, and dare I say, even sacrifices. We said earlier, we can't promise that if I do everything right, things are going to end up the way I want. But I can tell you, if you choose to place God at number 8 on your list, don't be surprised when your kids make them number 15. I was reading an article this week. It caught my attention because somebody had posted it on Facebook and I was reading it. The guy, he was ranting a little bit. He used a piece of scripture that really was out of context. And so that's what caught my attention. It's it's an annoyance to me when a preacher wants to vet a preference using scripture that's so out of context. And then right below it, all these other people. That's out of context. And everybody's trying to defend the comment. Well, he made an interesting point in the fact at the end. And it's extreme, but he's not 100% wrong. He says, what we do now our children will do in excess. And that's a good point. We're an example. So if we choose to make God nothing or little, they'll make him less. Now that doesn't mean that if I choose 100% and always perfect before God, my kids will do that. But this, we can give them an example. They'll make the decision. You see, there's a thousand voices vying for our attention. For ours, our kids, and you would say just kids, but ours today. I mean, a thousand people want to tell you what to believe politically, who's right, who's wrong. It's amazing how when both presidents can do the exact same thing, everybody believes the other one's worse. You ever notice that? How about we're all just sinful, corrupt people, right? It's amazing. It's like, now we got a chance to attack the other guys, and the world wants you to believe he's okay. And he, It's ridiculous. That's where the world's at. And they're screaming at you to believe something. So the question is, what voice are we putting in our life? What voice is in our home? What happens down the road, that's, that's really between God leading and working in their hearts. But what voice is in there? Let's look at number two, God's response to the wrong direction. We can't choose the outcome. If we go the wrong direction, we can't choose it. If you go 100 miles an hour down the road, you can't choose if the cop pulls you over. You can say, sorry, but it still may not change anything. God's response to the wrong direction. We teach, and often unashamedly and rightfully, about the grace and mercy of God, as we should. But please recognize that that doesn't make God a wimpy, careless being that is only there to solve our problems. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is and has given us instructions and guidance and expectations. As I read this week, I like this phrase. While he is long-suffering, he is not blind. He's watching. He'll bless those go a certain direction. Now, I'm going to go to our third point, because the first two were kind of just logical thoughts that we've seen from this. Number three, and I'll finish with this primary thought. God honors those who honor Him. Let's go to verse 30. This is what the prophet said to Eli, Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and that thy father's house should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me. For them that honor me I will honor. They that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Please understand the word despise does not mean hate. They just don't find important. The word despise, Hebrews, the idea, he's just not important. It's not, he goes back, remember the New Testament, let no man despise thy youth, look down on thy youth. Those who don't find me that important, that's what he says. Please understand, this is not demanding perfection. This is not manipulating God to get what we want. This is not us having to work to be accepted by God. This is simply, when I obey and follow God, I can expect Him to honor me and my family. Consider what we're reading here. We can focus on only the judgment of God and see God in a singular light. Or we can keep our eyes focused on the promise. Those that honor God and the things of God will enjoy his blessing. So let's go back to that premise I mentioned a few moments ago. We have this thought, I'm either greatly blessed of God, which means I'm always right with him, or my life's falling apart because of God's punishment. Now please understand, there are people that I've watched through my life who have seen God greatly bless, And then I've watched people over here where God is trying to get their attention. And unfortunately, after years and years, he's had to start using hard times to get their attention. He chases whom he loves. I've seen both. But unfortunately, in my opinion, a lot of times, most of us get comfortable here. I'm not saying we're all here, but we get comfortable here. We don't. We're not down here. Here's what we think: we're not down here being tortured or being chastised by God. Whew, we're good, great. Are we over here being blessed by God? I wonder if we even know what that looks like sometimes. I'm not. This Wednesday, Wednesday nights we've been going through the Book of Nehemiah, and a thought. I was reading it. It was not original with me. It's, it's simplistic but powerful at the same time. Remember, if you know the story, Nehemiah is sent back. To, he goes back to Israel with the uh, blessing of his king. He goes back to rebuild the walls. He gets there and he evaluates the rubbish. The, the gates have been burnt down. The walls have been tore down. Israel's been in captivity for decades. He comes back and he sees the wall and he evaluates and he comes up with the plan. And the moment he hears, before he even came, he heard about this and it overwhelmed him. Something's got to be done to the walls. And it, The whole book is about him being driven to bring Israel back to its great glory. But here's an intriguing thought. Nehemiah comes back. He sees the wall. He comes to the people who have been living around the rubbish for years. I Never caught that part. Many Israeli people have been living around the rubbish for years. You see what's the point? They were comfortable with the rubbish. They weren't bad. They were no longer in captivity, but they were no longer at the glory that Israel used to be at. I think sometimes we can get comfortable in the rubbish. I'm not over here, but over here is kind of hard. And it takes a lot of work and takes some sacrifice. And I'm a little nervous about over here. Here's what we do. Well, God's a God of punishment. No, 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 no. Here's what the passage says. He's not saying, I'll curse those who despise. He didn't say that. I'll lightly esteem you. But here's the promise in here. I will honor those who honor me. That's the promise that I hope we hold on to today. That's what we, I hope that drives us today. Not, nah, I'm not down here. I am here. And I'm enjoying answered prayer. I'm enjoying God's blessing. I'm enjoying God's direction. I'm enjoying God doing things in my life that He didn't do last year, or the year before, or the year before that. I'm enjoying passages where Paul says in Ephesians, "God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us." I'm living in that. I'm enjoying that. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. I'm living in that. I'm living in liberty and joy, and I'm watching through all of the circumstances, as we see in Philippians, the. joy i'm living in that that's what god wants for you but i'm afraid sometimes we're okay here now can i tell you as i want it's just a thought as we can as we come to a close here maybe one of the reasons we've become comfortable here is maybe we've never gotten saved we know all the answers we know church we might have even been baptized but i ask you the question do you know for sure if you die today you'd go to heaven there is a heaven and a hell. Do you know where you're going? You say I don't know if we can really know that. Pastor, the Bible tells us the first time, these things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We're also told there's a point in a man wants to die and after this the judgment. There is something coming after. Do you know where you're going? You see, here's what I mean by that. We come to church and we try to be religious. We sing the songs and we read the scripture and we say the things and we listen and we go home and it's like, man, it just seems like it's empty. And maybe it is. Maybe we've just never trusted Christ. I'm not saying we're running from him. I'm not saying we're against him. I'm just saying we've never put our faith in him. You say, well, I have a problem with religion. I have a problem with church. I have a problem with this. So do I. I have a problem with religion that pushes you away from God. I have a problem with church that brings up people over God. Amen? Amen. When you go to church, who should we, we should be worshiping God and pointing to Him, and it really shouldn't be about us at all. And hopefully when you come, that's our goal, point people to Jesus. So here's what I encourage you to do. Don't be swayed by anybody else. Be pointed to Jesus and Him alone. The question is not what are you doing with church and other people. What are you doing with Jesus? Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus. You don't have to get baptized or all the things. You do that later. The, the Bible tells us, these things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, you may know you have eternal life. In Romans 10, it references with the heart, man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. You just simply have to believe that Jesus is God, not religion, not church. Jesus is the answer. You are willing to acknowledge that you're a sinner, repent of your sin today, and call on Jesus. You can do that today. It's not a prayer that saves you. It's not even knowing that, it's embracing that, putting your faith in Jesus and turning to him today. You can do that even today. So I'd ask, one, maybe that's what you need. I just need to come to Jesus. Two, maybe today, there's some things in my life where I need to get them out so I can get over here to what God has for me. What direction are we going? God's got an amazing plan for you, for your family for your grandkids, for whatever. He, he loves you more than you could ever imagine. And his desire is to see you living in such great fulfillment. The question is, what direction are you going? Eli went a certain direction. He looked good. He was even able to bless Hannah. He had God's power in him enough to bless Hannah where she was able to have five more children. But he came to a point where he made a decision. We're not perfect. They weren't perfect. But when we're confronted with a reality of sin, what do we do about it? And that's the decision. Which direction will we go when God confronts us with where He wants us to go?